Hi, I'm Leighton Orient striker Matt Harold, and you are listening to the Just Checking In podcast. Hello again listeners and welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about the mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have our natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. I'm really excited to speak to today's guest listeners because it's definitely something a bit different for the pod, but one I hope will be just as enjoyable. His name is William Costello. He is an Irish writer studying evolutionary psychology at Brunel University, London. Will has debated publicly at universities around the UK about feminism, masculinity and gender identity politics. There'll be things you agree and disagree with Will about on this pod, but I hope you'll find it an interesting and thought-provoking conversation nonetheless. Will's academic journey, masculinity, incels, the dating economy and more are all on the menu for this pod. This is how our conversation went. Will, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. It's been a pretty quick transition from when we connect on social media to doing this pod. It's almost like a whirlwind bromance, but I'm very excited to have you on. How are you, mate? And how are you coping with this strange new normal we're living in, I guess? Yeah, thanks for having me on. First of all, I really appreciate uh, you reaching out to me um, via Twitter. And yeah, quick turnaround, but I appreciate that. In terms of the lockdown, I actually feel pretty guilty about how well it's worked out for my girlfriend and I. We've both been enjoying working from home or furloughed for a, a short while. So it's been lots of time just chilling with the dog, lots of reading, lots of writing, and lots of time to prepare for my master's, which starts in a couple of weeks. So I know it's been hard on a lot of people, so I actually feel pretty guilty about how, how nice it's been for me there's definitely a bit of a survivor's guilt for sure I, I think you know a lot of myself included and probably a lot of the listeners have felt we connected through a great article you wrote on medium about incels and incel culture and the mental health impact that has on men who are incels but fall outside of the stereotypical bracket of far-right extremism that the term is usually associated with predominantly in the u.s we'll discuss that later on in the pub we've got so much to get cracking on we shall we just get started <laughs> Let's start the pod, Will, by talking about your journey into academia. So firstly, do you want to talk about how it started, you know, what you've got up to today and why you decided this was a career you wanted to pursue rather than merely studying, if that makes sense? My academic background is that I moved to the UK from Galway in Ireland in 2011 to do an undergraduate degree in English and education with a view that I thought at the time that I wanted to become a teacher. I followed this up with a a postgraduate degree in career guidance and for the last five years I've spent working developing career guidance software that's used in schools to help young people make career decisions. My work often involved long commutes to the office from Birmingham to Leeds and I essentially during that time turned my car into a like a mobile university with podcasts and audiobooks and it, it made that time actually some of the most enriching time during my week and the podcasts and audiobooks that I was kept gravitating towards it kept leading back towards evolutionary psychology. So I've chosen now is the time to return to uni. I'm returning to Brunel University in London to start my master's in evolutionary psychology with the goal of going on to do a PhD and then fulfilling a long-term goal I've had of working in higher education. 
Looking back, I suppose my studies had kept taking unusual segues towards ev psych or evolutionary psychology at different points, but I perhaps didn't realize it at the time. For example, I did a creative writing English module on erotic fiction, of all things. It led me to read The Evolution of Desire by a famous evolutionary psychologist called David Buss, and it was absolutely fascinating. And I also wrote my dissertation defending the literary work of a quite controversial author called Tucker Max. I defended his literature against accusations of promoting rape culture. Tucker Max went on to host The Mating Grounds, which is a podcast he hosted alongside Dr. Jeffrey Miller, which attempted to bring evolutionary psychology more towards the mainstream. And that's kind of something I'd like to do. Any academic work I do, I'd like to make it accessible to contemporary society. I think it's only useful if you can do that. And as you progressed into this journey, what have been some of the challenges you've encountered? You know, let's talk about the structural ones first before we talk about some of the challenges you've encountered during your kind of advocacy work and speaking work. It definitely took me a lot of time to mature enough to go to university. I mean, now I'm 30 going back to do my master's, but I know that I'll enjoy it so much more than before. I'm going to get so much more out of it. In terms of the areas of study that I I kind of want to focus on, and we'll probably talk about that a good bit throughout the podcast, it's mainly that I think men and women are each other's greatest allies that we've ever had. And anything that I can do research-wise or writing-wise to help each other understand each other's behavior a little bit better, I think that will be of huge benefit to the world. Nobody has ever said that they wish people understood them less. I think that that's a big one for people. In terms of the challenges I've encountered, not, not too many really. I've had a good support network around me, but I suppose just being a late bloomer and having to make decisions early on. I, in some ways, I'm a little bit jealous of the American college system, whereby students get to sample a lot of variety of subjects before majoring in one uh, area of specialty. There's lots of things I'd like to start But of course, I'm not jealous of the debt associated with studying at higher education in America. Yeah, exactly. One challenge I'm sure you've encountered is being labelled a men's rights activist or MRA, which I find quite a loaded and quite frankly unhelpful label because people who aren't educated on your work could swiftly label you a sexist. But the main reason I find it very unhelpful is it delegitimizes many men who might simply want to advocate for awareness on issues affecting men and could lead to this sexist label or, or a dismissal of their thoughts. Firstly, does it affect you when you're called this in debates or discussions? And secondly, you spoke to me off air about your desire to move away from this label and into a more egalitarian ideal. What did you mean by that? Firstly, I wouldn't really think there's anything inherently sexist about being an MRA or men's rights activist. I don't know why it is such a loaded term and gets that unhelpful association. The reason I don't really personally identify as an MRA or men's rights activist is because I'm not personally really an activist in the same way that people doing great work like Mike Buchanan, Elizabeth Hobson, they're doing real activist work that I can't really claim to be doing anything similar. I'm just a commentator who's interested in a lot of men's issues. I also don't really want to be pigeonholed into a singular focus, and I think that might happen sometimes if you focus too much on having an identity like being an MRA. It's terrible that MRA comes with such a negative connotations and it's often undeserved, the sexism and stuff. And I suppose feminism comes with a similar connotation on the other side. In my opinion, as much sexist and misandrous stuff gets said in the name of contemporary feminism as gets said in MRA or men's rights circles. However, the difference is to criticize men in the name of feminism is almost seen as a progressive stance in society. I very much subscribe to the philosophy of Dr. Warren Farrell. He says that when one sex loses, 
both sexes lose. And I kind of think of it in this way that if you've got a hammer, everything begins to look like a nail. To feminists, everything looks like patriarchy. And to some men's rights activists, everything looks like a gynocentric feminist world. I think men and women are privileged and disadvantaged in different ways, and we can explore that. But if you define power as control over one's own life and not just economic earning power, then the idea of a modern patriarchy falls apart. But we can get into all that, but that's just essentially why I don't really use or identify as a, a men's rights activist. I don't think there's anything inherently sexist about it. When we were discussing the running order for this, you sent me a debate you did at Goldsmiths University called Sex War, A Discussion. It's available on YouTube if any of those listeners want to watch it. You debated against Jordan Stevens from Rizzle Kicks and also your own girlfriend. Before we chat about the ideas you discussed, what was that like debating your partner? Because it got a bit heated at times. Was there a post-match after the final whistle, extra time and penalties or not? People can never get over this when, when they meet my girlfriend and I. So we went to the pub afterwards with the audience from Goldsmiths and they were absolutely amazing, you know, great natured and tough and they weren't afraid to get into the weeds about controversial topics. They completely shattered my notion of snowflake students. But people couldn't really believe that my girlfriend and I could disagree so much on stage and still be very much in love. I think people are really struggling to have disagreements productively these days and I think that they can't have friendships or relationships with people they disagree with politically. You know, I wish more feminists were like my girlfriend but it's not been my experience. I guess there's a bit of a no true Scotsman fallacy at play with feminism whereby anything good is considered feminism but anything t- anytime that a feminist does something irrefutably bad people say oh well that's not really feminism, that's not really feminism. I think there's a reason that most British women don't identify as a feminist and it's not because they're too dumb to realise that they are one, as the Fawcett Society tried to claim in their study. But yeah, about my girlfriend and I, we get on very well. We have disagreements and we're able to still remain very much in love and I, I wish that more people could kind of get back to that ability to have disagreements productively and usefully. Just on that, do you think it's actually like a societal problem or a societal mask that's happened in the last four to five years? whereas people kind of see the fracturing of relationships whether it's in the US and the UK over the Trump election or Brexit and this whole idea of oh well we have to just keep politics off the table because otherwise it will just fracture everything if that makes sense. Yeah absolutely it's as a result of a outrage based attention based social media economy really that it's in social media's interest to keep you outraged and to kind of dehumanize the other side in a tribalistic society that you think of the other as almost evil which is uh, almost always not the case. We have a lot more in common than we do against each other. In your opening speech, you said that men have an obligation for success in life, which is driven by female mate selection and this idea of hypergamy, which you used the example of stay-at-home dads versus inverted commas breadwinners dads, although I think that phrase is slightly old-fashioned now, I would say. Could you expand on that and what consequences there could potentially be for men's mental health, whether that's increased pressure to attain physical perfection or something else? Hypergamy is the idea that women tend to marry equal or higher earnings earners are equal or higher status than themselves. And that has been true cross-culturally. It's getting perhaps less so in recent years, which is perhaps a good thing, but that has been the case and uh, consistent. It's said that they make far better mating decisions than us. And why shouldn't they? You know, evolutionarily speaking, they have a lot more to lose by choosing the wrong mate due to greater parental investment.
pleasant. They have to think more carefully. We men are pretty simple creatures in my book. We tend to follow the female reward system. And it's female sexual selection that has helped shape men's behavior almost more than anything. I often joke to women that if they want different behavior from men, they should just reward different things. And this brings us to a recent study by an academic called Joanna Pepin, and she's conducting research on what people really want from their relationships. Her research has found that just 5% of women said that they would like a relationship with a man who works part-time or doesn't work at all. So in recent years, we've done a fine job of bringing women into the workplace, but we haven't really brought men into the home anymore. And, and this isn't because men don't love their kids and families, it's because for centuries, men have shown love by being away from their families at work or at war, while the women were at home raising children. Now, this led to resentment in both because each had what it seemed that the other wanted. The men wanted to be at home with their kids, but felt they couldn't, and the women felt trapped at home in a home prison. This leads to a problem because there now literally aren't enough good men out there, you know, to, to make a joke of it, but if you're to go by women's own modern romantic standards. For example, statistically, a modern, highly educated woman desires a highly educated man, but they're rapidly outpacing men in education. So this means that more and more women are competing for fewer and fewer men that they really want. So to build on that, a study of Tinder, I think 40% of relationships start online now. So a study on Tinder is pretty significant. So the study found that the bottom 80% of men in terms of attractiveness are competing for the bottom 22% of women and the top 78% of women are competing for the top 20% of men. This mismatch has traditionally been solved by what was called societally enforced monogamy. It means like a strong social norm of monogamy of one woman, one man, and they'll get married. And there was kind of almost pressure put on women to settle. Now, this societally enforced monogamy has eroded over the last number of years. Women no longer feel they need to settle for a man that they don't want. And why should they? However, it does lead us to a problem of more and more men not being selected for and eventually to the incel problem, which I wrote about and which has kind of brought us here today. There's a lot going on in terms of that mismatch and the pressure that can, you know, we can talk more about the pressure that then puts on men and their mental health, which is pretty plain to see. You also positioned this idea of role mates to soulmates. Could you just tell the listeners what you meant by that with a mental health angle as well, if you could? Well, if we consider that there are two big predictors of meaning or what constitutes a mentally well life for a man, having a wife and having a job. In the past, those were kind of guaranteed pretty much because of societally enforced monogamy and the fact that most jobs were physical. Well, the switch we've made now over in recent years to a brain-based economy rather than a brawn-based economy and the female emancipation into the workplace means that women are competing with men for the same jobs but wanting to marry equal or higher than themselves simultaneously. This wouldn't be a problem if women were comfortably rewarding full-time fathers in their sexual selection. But as we saw in our recent study that I alluded to, that's simply not the case. So it's kind of, we're pulling in different directions. Now we can frame this as Oh, oh, fragile men and their egos. But they really are threatened here because they do have a lot to lose, you know, in terms of jobs and then that impacting on being sexually selected for. I don't think this is great news for women either now because it means there are less men that they actually want. And, you know, we constantly hear in the media, where are all the good men? And there was even a headline that said, broke men are hurting American women's marriage prospects. 
thought that was a pretty funny one. So it's not great news for women either. I think this is why we need to do a better job of discussing things like the incel problem in society than just holding them in disdain or deriding them, because that doesn't really help anyone. On a sort of more jovial question, do you think this concept has its roots in perhaps more popular culture? You know, I think of TLC's No Scrubs, you know, it's still a banger, but I always joke I'm two thirds of the chorus of this song, you know, excluding treating women badly. Now, I self-deprecate about it, but it's actually quite emasculating deep down because we are in increasingly precarious financial positions for a lot of men unable to achieve that sort of financial success earlier. Have you seen that demonstrated with other men as well in your research? Yeah, I mean, that's a constant. And I mean, you can look to the media and culture for loads of double standards of the way men and women are kind of talked about and the deadbeat dad or the broke man being demeaned in society is a tired trope now. But yeah, yeah, that's a good example, actually, of the, the banger from TLC. My article points to a lot of evidence of popular culture that demeans men and laments the lack of good men out there. Evolutionarily, this comes from women being the sexual selection gatekeepers. They're seen as the decision makers. And women can be said are seen as being born with inherent value in that most women can have children. So that's automatically valuable to society. Whereas men have had to demonstrate value in order to be chosen. So they've got to actually prove themselves before they can be selected to carry their genes on to the next generation. Whereas women can actually be the decision makers, so to speak. We still operate like this today, although a little bit more subtle. I don't know if you've seen the American conservative commentator, Tommy Lahren. She released a 15 minute video lecturing men on what they need to fix about themselves in order to earn the right to date her and her friends. Now, I found the whole thing a little bit cringe, but can you imagine, Fred, the backlash that you or I would receive if we gave a 15-minute lecture about what women needed to fix about themselves in order to be good enough for me and the lads? This wouldn't happen, right? So it even goes a little bit deeper than this, to be honest, and perhaps even a little bit darker. But historically, male lives have been valued as more disposable, and civilization has been built on the backs of men and boys sent to die as fodder in war. Most men are not chosen and we live our lives competing for women. I mean, female sexual selection is a powerful, powerful beast in terms of shaping male behavior. And for the majority of our history, we've been blind to it. Now, I think that we're beginning to be able to see how our evolutionary psychology is playing out in the real world and how it doesn't necessarily need to be that way, I think we're in a position to be more mindful about what we reward and decide what type of male behavior should be rewarded. So, for example, I, for one, would love if more women would start marrying full-time dads, and I hope they do, because I think that would really motivate men to choose that route, and nothing else will motivate as powerfully, in my opinion. We've come to the Gillette ad, part of the discussion. This was something that I definitely wanted to talk to you about, because this ad came out last year and tried to tackle and challenge toxic masculinity in the wake of the Me Too movement. Now, disregarding the corporatism at play here on a nationwide movement to tackle historical sexual abuse aside and the bandwagoning. It was a controversial ad in quite a lot of ways. I have my own opinion on it, but what's yours, Will? I have quite strong opinions on this and uh, there's been a couple of commentators who've done a really good job. Modern Wisdom is a really good channel on YouTube that have done a really good analysis of this. So I encourage your listeners to maybe check that out, but I'll give my opinions on it. There's a reason that the ad actually tanked in terms of public opinion and revenue for the brand. So 
there's the saying, go woke and go broke is the, the kind of the joke about it. People don't want to be lectured about their behavior by a corporate giant. And I guess the reason it didn't land with people and one of the reasons I hated the ad was because the same ad in reverse, speaking about women, would have zero social currency. If we took the worst and most cliched examples of bad female behavior and bad female stereotypes and said, women, do better. It would never even make the screen. Are we making the claim here that women are just better behaved and more moral and that there's no such thing as toxic female behavior? Of course, there's horrific examples of toxic female behavior, but we don't take those most extreme examples to use them and exemplify typical female behavior. That's what the Gillette ad does about men. And that's prejudice. That's bias, right? Which we usually rail against. There are actually studies to show that we typecast women as more moral, by the way, but that's a very interesting new kind of study. So our intuitions are to think of women as just being less nefarious in their actions. Specifics about the ad that bugged me, specifically the patronizing bit where one of the guys stopped the other guy from chasing the girl that he wanted to speak to and flirt with. Now, it didn't strike me that the guy was heckling the girl or catcalling her even. He kind of just wanted to chat her up. And the guy stepped in and stopped it and he was the white knight and saved the day. I just thought, how dare he? Who does he think he is? What if this woman really liked him? What if they fell in love? Surely that's her decision. Women are strong and capable and don't need a white knight like that to literally stop men from talking to them. Especially when we live in a society where 90% of the first moves are expected to be made by men. So what's going to happen if men don't approach? You're one step away of wrapping them up in a burqa and having female-only train carriages there. It's condescending and mansplaining even to women about what they should want. And although it's a hypothetical, but I'd wager that the guy stopping his friend, I bet he's not single himself. I bet he's already in a relationship. He's kind of saying, tough luck, mate. I get to be this really high ground moral guy. Don't bother women. You know, if you're a single man, you get a 90% of the advances are expected to be made by men. I don't think women want men to stop approaching them and trying to go out with them. It's just strange. Another aspect I didn't like about the ad is that it draws a straight line from kids playing and roughhousing and draws a straight line from that type of typical male child behavior towards like Harvey Weinstein. So rough play is natural for boys. It's not an indication that they're going to turn into Harvey Weinstein. And by the way, most men do not turn out like Harvey Weinstein anyways. Ultimately, I, I just don't recognize this world where women live in constant fear of the majority of men and need to be protected from them. In reality, I think women find us to be the brothers, husbands, sons, cousins, friends, lovers, and they have an overwhelmingly positive experience of men. I think that's what most women would say. And finally, it also is completely ineffectual to eradicate any bad male behavior. Bad men, like Harvey Weinstein, they know what they're doing is wrong. So a budding Harvey Weinstein a future Harvey Weinstein is not going to see this Gillette ad and have a, a massive moral awakening and say I completely changed my behavior now so it's just woke virtue signaling that I thought rubbed people up the wrong way let's talk about that incel article we mentioned at the top of the pod it was called step your dick up why incels deserve better advice which is headline grabbing at least so it probably got you a few reads I read it at least most people when they hear the term incel think of very angry sexually frustrated and often very disturbed men do you want to just first define 
what an incel is for the listeners and talk to me about why you wanted to write the article and the ideas and arguments you discussed within it. This is what brought us together. And uh, yeah, thanks for reading the article and sharing it around. It's, it's getting it quite positively received. So an incel or involuntarily celibate is defined as someone who identifies as someone who cannot gain access to sex for a sustained period. Now, going by this definition and acknowledging the fact that the number of men not having sex within the last year has increased threefold in the last decade, we must conclude that the majority of incels are peaceful and non-violent. Now, a significant minority of incels derive a sense of community or identity, spitting misogynistic vitriol online, and in rare individual cases of incels have actually lashed out at society in horrific acts of violent rage. Now, the media and cultural depiction tends to fixate on those latter two groups and uses them to represent all incels as misogynistic. They're really misaligned in society and in the media. I care about incels because I feel they're very misrepresented due to the most extreme voices within their community. And in other areas, we quite rightly rail against other minority groups being defined by extremists within their community. For example, the harmful stereotype of Muslims as terrorists. However, we're reluctant to do this when we talk about incels. And in society, we usually try to help or at least have sympathy for the most disenfranchised minority groups. But we don't seem to do this when we discuss incels. And in response to my article, I've had people who are usually extremely kind commentators say things like, life is hard, get over it. And they almost relish in shunning incels and the incel problem. I think this is a disservice to the vast majority of incels who do not meet the trivialized caricature description used by most media. The caricature of incels or inceldom can lead to a temptation for us to just dismissively shun incels from polite society. But this doesn't help the problems that they face or represent in society. It stemmed out of meeting an incel for the first time. I went to a men's conference in London last year and I heard an incel speak what really propelled me to write the article was when the incel in question described the ineffectiveness and cruelty of the advice he receives in terms of dealing with his plight in life. He's kind of given the advice of just lift, bro, as in just lift weights and that'll solve everything. And the other piece of advice he gets is be yourself, which I mean, we can get on to discuss the kind of advice and what might and might not work. But that just really hammered home with me. And I felt I needed to, this guy didn't meet the description of incel that I saw in the media. So I wanted to kind of maybe rectify that if I could. You compared the stereotype of the single man versus the single woman in this article. Do you want to just elaborate a bit on that? This actually came up because when I met that incel for the first time at that conference in London, I brought up the question from the audience about Emma Watson, who had just been having a media love-in about herself for announcing herself as self-partnered, basically the female version of an incel embracing an identity like that. But everyone in the media loved her for this. They didn't shun her from society. Now, most incels would tell you that they don't acknowledge that female incels or femcels truly exist. This is because, as they see it, in the mating market, women, as we've spoken about, do the choosing and men have to do the approaching. Women may struggle to get the sex and love that they want or deserve, but some men or incels 
struggle to get anything at all. So kind of ultimately women have tough choices, but incels have no choices, if that makes sense. I know for a fact there's a big problem amongst young men when it comes to their body image. Now, obviously, this has been true for centuries and centuries and centuries of women. I'm not discounting that at all. But more men are taking steroids than ever before. It's especially true at kind of youth level sport, kind of between the ages of 18 to 30. And boys are wanting six packs younger and younger, which was never the case in my day. People had to go at you for what clothes you're wearing in a sort of materialistic way rather than what you could lift. I see this behavior quite a lot in the gym. I see kids coming into the gym from a younger and younger age when I was 16, 15, I was just concentrating on underage drinking and playing Call of Duty. You illuminated this problem in the article and its relation to men's sexual desire and what you just alluded to recently with the phrase, just lift, bro, as a sort of magic bullet given to incels who are struggling. The bullet doesn't actually work. Tell me a bit more about that and the dangerous mental health ramifications it could have. First of all, that's really interesting because we never really hear about unrealistic body image for men and boys in the media. Even uh, I could use the example of pornography, where every penis on show in pornography is at least 10 inches long and circumcised pretty much across the board. So, you know, you talk about unrealistic body image, you know, what, what is that doing to the psyche of young men and boys, many of whom consume a lot of pornography? I wouldn't really advocate for steroids or know enough about how common that is. I generally think that male psychology is a little bit different in that we like the aspirational. We like having heroes and, and role models. It's very important to choose positive role models to emulate and pick the, the elements of your role models that will help you. I personally get really motivated if I see a, a male athlete or even a male peer of my own who's absolutely crushing it, whether it's in the gym, academically, a teammate, whatever it is. And I don't tend to neurotically think that it means I'm not good enough. It kind of shows me how good I could potentially be. It's aspirational. And I guess to be fair to women here, their worth has historically been much more intrinsically tied to their body image. And crudely put, women have been viewed as sex objects while men have been viewed as success objects, obligation for success, as we've talked about. Now, there's also this aspect of men's aspirational gym body, so the six-pack, etc. It's still pretty attainable, and the process that you'd have to go through to get that male aspirational gym body would likely be good for your mental health for the most part. I mean, obviously not talking about steroids or too much stress, but getting yourself really fit would actually probably be really good for your mental health. Whereas for women, it's uh, unattainable due to like Photoshop, lip fillers, Instagram filters. Now, perhaps that's coming down the line for men and boys, though. I mean, it, you know, in the younger generation, who, who knows? But back to the incels and the just lift, bro. I think the problem with telling incels to just lift, bro, is that many of them have physical and mental disabilities that mean that this is really cruel advice for them. And it also just it kind of overall demeans the issue and kind of gaslights an incel into thinking the problem isn't as big as you think it is. It's just simply you need to lift weights. And when in reality, it is a lot more complex than that. Now, I'm not nihilistic and I, I still think I would advocate the self-development route as it's good for someone, even if they don't achieve the goal of getting girls, if, if that is the goal. But the problem is that as soon as you tie the explicit goal of wanting to attract women to any form of self-development, 
it somehow gets framed as misogynistic. Now, this is strange to me because let's face it, attracting women is a pretty big motivator for a lot of people to develop themselves. It certainly was for me. I don't see why it's inherently misogynistic. A lot of women will develop themselves and their body or even, you know, I have female friends who say they learn to cook really well because they wanted to attract men, you know, and and a man could do something like that too, you know, but attracting the opposite sex as a, a motivator isn't intrinsically sexist. It seems to be like women want men to just be naturals rather than trying to learn or something, perhaps, which uh, is a little bit strange to me. I think what you said about it coming down the line for men, I definitely agree with. And I think the dangerous part is social media. And I think men who are either Instagram models or who have these sort of inverted commas, unrealistic body type, if they're plastering that all over social media, then kind of younger boys who follow them will aspire to it, but not know the amount of work that's put in. And also whether that person is actually on steroids as well. So it might not, it might be a completely unattainable body. I definitely think there's something there. You framed this race to the bottom for incels around the online dating economy. Can you just explain this in a bit more detail? detail and the dismissive comments you've received when you've advocated for greater awareness and again you sort of build upon this sort of weird hatred people have for incels when actually the right response should be empathy not sympathy and compassion not scorn i think my piece although it is about incels it's also about the modern dating economy and attraction inequality and almost lookism more broadly too it seems that people want to feel more moral about themselves by highlighting a deficiency in someone else. And now you see this a lot online now with cancel culture about almost everything. If someone can point to something someone has said as racist, it makes them feel a lot better about themselves. In terms of then the masculinity and the the incel angle, when so much of male identity is kind of wrapped up in this idea of competency and agency, incel's admission of incompetence, it's quite jarring to us as a society. And we find it almost repugnant. If I could, the question that you asked, I think can best be answered by quoting from two different journalists that I actually quote within my article. It's James Bloodworth and Louise Perry. And they've actually been having a really useful wiki letter exchange about the dating economy. And I highly recommend your listeners check that out. James Bloodworth says, we still judge people by how much sex they have or not in this case. We still view men who don't have sex as failures in some way. For men, calling someone an incel implies something positive, a certain sexual abundance about one's own existence. For women, it has begun to function as a put-down that ruthlessly dismisses unworthy suitors while simultaneously expelling them from the community of the good as misogynistic and creepy. Louise Perry, who is a feminist herself, she says, the dating market is highly competitive, hierarchical, and often cruel. This fact is uncomfortable for anyone who values egalitarianism. So a more appealing, albeit dishonest option, is to blame incels for their plight by suggesting that their unpleasant personalities must be the problem. Those two ways to look at it really frame why we're kind of so repelled by even discussing this problem. I think what you said about another platitude, which was keep trying, there's someone out there for everyone, is also maybe said from a good place, but can be very, very damaging as well, can't it? It's a funny one because I was left scratching my head a lot about what do people want from incels? What's the correct route for them to take? And I guess my article was about 
trying to find the sweet spot between what can be mitigated, improved upon, and ultimately overcome for an incel, which is the route I would advocate. Try and develop yourself and try and overcome any obstacles you have. But there is obviously no objective answer to this of how much someone needs to overcome. But like I said, we can grapple with the questions. So some elements, for example, are immutable. Unfortunately for myself, like height, which my article details is a significant deal breaker for many women, which is not great news for me, but I've managed to, my compensation game is strong. <laughs> but height is a big deal breaker for many women. You, you might be able to say that that's pretty arbitrary, but you wouldn't, if men said weight is a complete deal breaker for me, it would be seen as really cruel. But women can kind of absolutely, no problem at all, say no men believe five foot nine or whatever it is. So what left me scratching my head is why do we insist if we're in a world where 90% of romantic advances are expected to be made by the men, why do we want them to continue to run this gauntlet? Why do we want incels to constantly pick themselves up and try again, endure humiliating rejection after rejection after each clumsy attempt. And now bear in mind that these clumsy attempts at trying to pull women, which can be a pretty complicated process <laughs> at the best of times, let alone for a socially awkward and anxious incel, that can be pretty uncomfortable for the women as well. Any female friends will tell you about uncomfortable, creepy guys coming on to them in the nightclubs, you know, so it's a pretty poison chalice. We also have a world with antiquated views about who should pay financially on dates. How much money should a man or an incel have to spend fruitlessly on courtship before it's okay to stop? What's the correct answer there? The notion that there's someone out there for everyone also seems a little bit kind of sexist towards women to me. I mean, are we saying that if you just keep looking, there'll be a woman with low enough standards for you? You know, that doesn't sound great either. What do we as a society get out of this ritual that causes so much pain? Ultimately, incels and mugtow, I don't know, have you are you familiar with the term Mugtau? Mugtau is basically an, another offshoot of what's called the manosphere, and it stands for men going their own way. And they'd be slightly different from incels insofar as they would be men who probably could get access to sex, but see it as more trouble than it's worth. They're just going their own way. Men going their own way is what it stands for. So incels and men going their own way have taken the decision to check out of the mating market. They see it as the cost is too high, both financially and emotionally, and they're increasingly retreating to virtual worlds, pornography, online communities. And it's kind of like a shelter from what they see as a culture that rejects them. I think we kind of need to do better to offer incels and Mugtau or men going their own way a better choice. Because right now, the online communities seem like a more comfortable place for them. When I was in school, and this kind of builds on something that you've mentioned, virgin baiting, as I'm calling it, was quite commonplace and incredibly humiliating. Boys would use it as a trump card against others, including myself, to win an argument or publicly shame another person. Now, for me, I would describe this as a form of toxic masculinity, but I know you're not a fan of the term. Can you just explain why this tool in school is so harmful? That gets back to that defining a man's value or worth based on their sexual potency, I suppose, even from a young age, which is it's kind of ridiculous when you think about as a young teenage boys, we weren't exactly that sexually potent, were we? But, you know, it, it seems a strange way to define a man's worth. With the toxic masculinity thing, I don't think we'd say that the most extreme examples of male behavior, of bad male behavior, are typical. And we certainly wouldn't say that the worst examples of female behavior are 
are typical. The fact that there's no female equivalent or toxic femininity suggests that we think that women are more moral, which obviously isn't objectively the case. Where are the campaigns to educate women on how to do better? I don't mean to engage in like whataboutery because I would never demean femininity as toxic. I don't think it is inherently. You could make that Gillette advert in reverse, but it just wouldn't go down that well. I think the term toxic masculinity is liberally used to describe and denigrate traditional masculinity. And I think it's because the past is culturally now accepted and seen as oppressive, male, privileged, patriarchy. So therefore, traditional masculinity, whatever it was in the past, is toxic and needs fixing. And this means the baby is getting thrown out with the bathwater, so to speak. A, a lot of good traditional masculine qualities like competitiveness, bravery, etc., are now being maligned because of this. And the suggestion that I kind of have to laugh and scratch my head when the suggestion is that anything bad that happens to women is the result of a patriarchy. But also, all the ways that men lose out, for example, suicide, homelessness, prison, death by homicide, workplace deaths, etc., that is also men's fault through toxic masculinity. A, is that not the definition of victim blaming? And B, is that not incredibly stripping of agency to women themselves. It just doesn't seem right to me. If there is a toxic masculinity, perhaps it can be more intrinsically tied to what we'd call as gynocentrism or a world that causes men to run themselves into the ground chasing female approval and living their lives in service of women and putting them up on pedestals, that kind of thing. I'll give an example of this. We had a story in the media the other week about a young boy who, you might have seen it, Freddie, he threw himself in front of a dog that was attacking his sister and he's quoted as saying if anyone ought to die then he thought it should be him now that broke my heart to hear but perhaps this is a deeply wired tendency for men and boys to view even themselves as disposable in service of women and girls which is strange i mean you know you even have it on boats still or on the titanic women and children first douglas murray talks about how we're simultaneously told to believe that women are the same as men and simultaneously better and more important which is it you know and i suppose the kicker is that despite all this rhetoric and all this idea of trying to get rid of toxic masculinity or demean traditional masculinity women don't really Really want men to be more like women they will continue to reward with their sexual reward system the men that they want and men will continue to follow that reward system we've talked about will the academic and the writer let's go a bit deeper and talk about your own journey will so why don't you just talk to me about your early life first childhood kind of teenage years and and whether looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? You know, who's the will we meet here? Happy to talk about it. And uncharted terrain for me. Usually I talk more academically or intellectually about stuff. So happy to talk a little bit more personally and hopefully you find it interesting. In terms of my upbringing or background, I mean, the old joke is that they say you should choose your parents carefully. I only realized in recent years how lucky I was with my family and how nurturing they really are. They definitely gave me a self-belief and that if anything was worth trying, it was worth trying, even if it goes wrong. And that if something good can happen, then why shouldn't it happen and happen to me? That's kind of stuck with me. And it stood me in good stead of kind of put myself in front of opportunities that's uh, benefited me along the way. I recognize now that this is a privilege because 
uh, have encountered other people and other families or people that have been given self-defeating attitudes about themselves. We're all lucky or unlucky to be the person that we are. And I mean that both genetically and circumstantially. And if we view the world like this, it can help us be a little bit more or a little bit less judgmental when we consider the other people that we encounter. They're all just playing out what, whatever they've been born into and whatever circumstances they've encountered. And for the luck of the lottery, that could be you. In secondary school, you spoke to me about how you struggled to adjust to the threat of physical violence that all boys faced in school. And and actually, it kind of really gave me a couple flashbacks to my own experience being bullied in secondary school. And, you know, everyone says about that phrase, I'll see you after school. But confrontation for me, as someone who wasn't used to it and was just, you know, a kid growing up and having his own mental health issues to deal with, was so anxiety inducing and it can make you fear coming into school. It can make you fear everything. It can make you, you know, look over your shoulder constantly. It's fair to say it made you quite paranoid when you were in school how did you deal with it definitely i relate to a lot of what you just said there fred i mean i don't mean to suggest that the west of ireland is like mean streets of la with gangs and uh, bloods and the crypts or anything like that but there certainly is as it was and there is groups of young lads who form an identity around gang culture and violence i found this impossible to avoid no matter how hard i tried for whatever reason I mean, I would much rather have been just playing sport, chasing girls and reading. The threat of physical violence always loomed, no matter what I did. It did make me feel very fearful and paranoid. The really dark side of this, you know, I'm lucky I got through all that and and I'm fine, no no scars or anything. But I actually have a classmate who is unfortunately still in a vegetative state now because of a fist fight that went wrong. His life is ruined, his family's life is ruined. And, you know, I wish that young men would realize the, the ramifications of using their body as a lethal weapon, which is what you're doing if you engage in a fistfight. I mean, I at the time, I thought I couldn't avoid it. I didn't think that saying that I didn't want to ever be in a fistfight was an option back then. But now I'm absolutely happy to say that. I, as long as I live, I don't want to be in another fistfight if, if I can help it. And I think what you spoke there is, is really powerful and, and something that I experienced in school. I often described my school as sort of prison culture meets 90210 or, or Gossip Girl or something like that. It was a really weird hierarchical mix where boys only talked about who was the best at fighting and urgent baiting each other. And that's for me where the whole kind of idea of toxic masculinity has creeped in. And I hope it's something that we can break down and we can talk about positive masculinity as well, which is something I talk about in the pod later on in the mental health chat. I wish when I was young that I had heard more male role models talking about how non-violent is the option and that that's actually the cool option. There's a phrase from Japanese philosophy, I can't think of who wrote it, but it's called the Book of Five Rings. And I believe it says that it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war, which means that you should be trying to develop yourself to be capable and strong and able to protect yourself, but to exist within a garden that your life is more peaceful rather than being caught in a war with your only skills being a gardener. So it's, it's something that's kind of stuck with me that your aspiration should be non-violence, but unfortunately, currently, you need to be prepared for it. And I think also this is where people forget how dangerous social media can be for kids. They're getting phones earlier and earlier. And I think back when we were in school, I only got Facebook at year 10. And that was only on my home computer with the washing basket next to it. Now they've got social media at their fingertips all the time. So if someone has beef, that can be ignited, picked up upon, exploded into action in seconds, minutes, instead of someone saying something to someone at the start of school and then it only getting, you know, to someone else at the end of school, if that makes sense. So school journeys as well are completely 
absolutely dangerous now. There's actually a good lot of research that shows that a lot of homicide and a lot of murder is as the result of just a, an incidental slight that a man feels he's socially slighted by like a road rage incident or something like that. And actually, the likelihood of an altercation turning physically violent increases with the more people that are watching it. So what you said there about the all eyes are on you with the cameras and everything, that only exasperates the problem. So that's really, it's like a tinder keg environment. That's a really good point. And it's pride and ego. And when you're kids, pride and ego is, is the biggest thing. No one wants to feel like, you know, when I was in school, no one wanted to be called a pussy, in inverted commas. No one wanted to be called weak or seen as backing out of a fight. And that is just completely toxic to men and boys growing up now because the social media aspect will amplify a confrontation. It will get shared on their social media networks and for kids your school network is your world and if your world is crumbling like that then what do you do absolutely that's an example of an evolutionary drive that we as a civilized society need to override obviously throughout our evolved history it's been an advantage to be able to beat another man in physical violence but now we don't need to and hopefully we are getting more peaceful i mean there's a lot of research that shows we are getting a little bit more peaceful in terms of our own micro encounters but we're getting more violent in terms of dropping drones on other countries and things like that so the physical violence one-to-one might be decreasing but there's other forms of war being waged that is a little bit different. You also have in school people telling you, enjoy it. These are the best days of your life. You're never going to get these back. If a child or teenager is struggling, and I probably got this from people when I was growing up, it's actually incredibly invalidating and gaslights them completely because they have no idea what's going on inside your head or the stories that have happened to you in school. They only maybe see the crisis moments at your very, very worst, if that. Why are phrases like this quite dangerous to say to children when it comes to their mental health? I think people are well-meaning when they say this, but I think people say it because they personally might have peaked in school, something we talked about off the podcast, and they look back on their school days with a kind of whimsical nostalgia. It's a time of less worries, no bills, no job pressure or whatever it might be. And as time passes, our memory distorts the past too. We don't remember the event as it actually happened. We only remember our most recent memory of it. So we remember it a little bit more fondly. Also, up until our early 20s, school and then perhaps university is a ready-made bubble that you're kind of trampled into. It's, It's all set up for you. Everything is kind of there after that that you have to make decisions and find the job find the wife etc and kind of life build and it becomes more stressful and that's when a lot of men really struggle in their early 20s right that's when the kind of suicidality hits in and that's kind of why i wanted to become a careers advisor and work in career education is to help young people realize that the first part of your life is life building you should prepare your life and design your life and think what kind of life do i want don't just let it happen to you and be more conscious writing your own script kind of thing I completely agree with everything you've said there. Something you said to me off air really stood out as well, which is this idea of baggage of local roots, if that makes sense, which you left behind when you moved to England to study and then live. Just tell me a bit about that and the hindrance it could have on someone, not everyone, because my local roots have been great, but I realise I have a privilege in that, on achieving in life if it applies to them. So I guess what I was kind of getting at there is, I mean, don't get me wrong, I had a good time of it in school compared to a lot of lads, certainly. But I always knew that my best days would be in the life that I'd build beyond school. I had niche interests that perhaps weren't best explored in the west of Ireland. And it was kind of hard to find things in common with a lot of guys in my school or class. I highly recommend to people to move country or move city to build a new life for themselves in your early 20s. Because when you do that, you're forced to build the life you want 
a little bit more consciously. You decide who you want in it, what pastimes you really want to keep with you. At school, you kind of have no choice but to be surrounded by people you might not want to be around. As you proceed through life, and I say this to students a lot when I get the chance, you gain more control over your own life as you get older. And that can give a lot of solace to people who think that, oh, is this what life is going to be like forever? I really don't like school, but people are telling me it's the best times of my life, which is counterproductive. You also get to know yourself a bit better too. And self-awareness is huge for me. And I'll probably talk about that a little bit more in the podcast. Self-awareness is like a superpower as far as I'm concerned. It's the only way you can truly get what you want. Otherwise, you're just walking with a blindfold on and letting life happen to you. You're not consciously walking in any one direction. We'll touch on this later on in the pod, but you were keen to talk about having a means-tested approach when it comes to encouraging men to speak out and express vulnerability or emotion. Everyone is different and we'll all have different preferences as to what will help us. Tell the listeners about your view on this and the example you gave me when we spoke off air about how you formed this opinion. This is perhaps maybe where I deviate from the mainstream in terms of the advice men get on their mental health. And by no means am I saying this is the the answer for everyone. I would never claim that. Like you said, everyone is different and what works for one will not work for another. And everyone is an individual in their own right. However, I think that there is a tendency that we live in a kind of therapeutic culture and it's trying to encourage men to process their emotions in a more feminine way. Because as we've explored, that that is seen as more moral or more good. If we could only make more men more like women, the world would be a better place. I mean, you even see this in world leaders who are women are more peaceful and better leaders. Our headline saying, female leaders handle coronavirus much better. And I don't know if you could do it in reverse. It would be a terrible headline. We encourage men to cry more, talk more. And this might jar with a lot of men who process their emotions in a different way. Men generally are solution-based thinkers and dwelling on problems might not be the best solution for all. I'm big on emotional literacy and recognizing your own mental state and when it kicks in and what you need to do to make a change. But talking about things isn't always the best example for everyone. For example, personally, uh, if I could open up a little bit, I had an ex-girlfriend who I told an experience to that others might think of as traumatic. But to me, it wasn't. I hadn't framed it that way. And by all intents and purposes, I'd come to terms with this experience and it wasn't negatively affecting my life. Now, when I told my ex this, she seemed to relish it and almost used it as an opportunity to pathologize every aspect of me. And she wanted to almost use it to score points. And it was like it was a good thing that she had this episode in my past that she could point to that explains everything, which wasn't really manifesting in the present day. She insisted that I was in denial about how traumatic what happened to me must have really been. And she insisted that I go to counseling. So every time I would go to counseling, within about 45 minutes, of talking to the counsellor, the counsellor would say to me, why are you here, William? You seem at ease with yourself and everything you've been through. That would be the goal of counselling. What was I doing for? I was kind of trying to reverse engineer what the a productive counselling process would achieve. There's actually something on Twitter going around, which we might talk about later. It's about uh, how this woman is seen to demean her male friend, who she's constantly trying to encourage to go to counselling. And he keeps resisting and saying, well, I like self-development a lot. I'm reading a lot of these books. 
books or I'm talking to my friends about things a lot more or I'm exercising a lot more and that seems to help. The joke on the Twitter meme is that this is men being resistant to counselling when in actual fact the things he was describing were really beneficial things that would probably be helping his mental health but nothing other than counselling would do for this female friend which is very strange what I was getting at with that therapeutic culture. And I think certainly there's an element of what you say that I, I definitely agree with because I talk to a lot of men and some of them do need to be able to talk and they need to be encouraged to talk, whereas some of them just say talking about this problem I have doesn't help. And that's completely fine, you know, because we need to find other methods to help those men who may find that talking's not the option, if that makes sense, because not every method works for everyone and everyone is individual and unique. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm a talker. I love talking, but that's a real struggle for most men or a lot of men to articulate their problems, A, to themselves is tough and B, to explain that in a way that seems understandable to someone else. That's tough. It's actually adding more pressure if you say to them that that's the route through to success. And just as a final question, Will, given all of you've been through all these successes and ups and downs that you've had along the way, how have all these experiences shaped you into the person I'm talking to today? The person I am today, I'd say my mental health is really good and um, I'm in a really good place. And I would say I have good mental health literacy. I, I know what will stress me, what will get me down, what's just a fleeting mood or what's something that's ongoing worry that I need to make a change. I also know what will cheer me up, which is uh, important to have those medicine actions ready and available to know that about yourself. And I have a really good people and infrastructure around me. Jordan Peterson uses the biblical story of Noah's Ark, that there's always a flood coming and that it's important to build your ark around you in advance so that you don't drown when it inevitably comes. I guess I'm fortunate enough to have had a good ark around me and to be building one that's even stronger. Our final topic of conversation, Will, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about mental health. We've already answered how you're doing with your mental health, which is great. If you felt comfortable saying, what mental health issues or conditions do you live with, if any, and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? I don't really have any ongoing mental health issues that I can articulate, but something that grates in my mind is that I tend to be very indecisive and struggle with choice and the fact that I can't click pause on life and see what two different directions would be like uh, to pursue. Overthinking. Yeah, overthinking, absolutely. Just like not knowing which is the right option to choose and wishing I could go back and find out what would life have been like if I chose differently. So it's like time as a finite resource is a struggle for me. And it's actually, I'm really annoyed that I'll have to die one day because of this. I hate that thought that I would one day have to accept that. And there's actually a beautiful passage that I've written down because I knew this question was coming. It's from a piece of literature, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. I could quote from if it would be interesting to you. So it says, there is no means of testing which decision is better because there is no basis for comparison. We live everything as it comes without warning, like an actor going on cold. And what can life be worth if the first rehearsal for life is life itself? That is why life is always like a sketch. No, sketch is not quite a word because sketch is an outline of something, the groundwork for a picture. Whereas the sketch that is our life is a sketch for nothing, an outline with no picture. The thing that gives our every move its meaning is always totally unknown to us. If life occurs only once, and the reason we cannot determine which of our decisions are good and which is bad, is that in a given situation, we can only make one decision. We are not granted a second, a third, a fourth life in which to compare various decisions. If I had two lives, then I could compare and see which had been the best thing to do. 
but we only live life once. Life is so light, like an outline we can't ever fill in or correct or make any better. It's frightening. When I heard that from the unbearable lightness of being, which I encourage your listeners to watch, it was really haunting. And that's the mental health issue that really gets on my mind is mortality, thinking I will one day have to resign myself to the fact that I will die and not knowing which decision is right. That's a beautiful description of compare and despair. And to be honest, that kind of indecision affects me in such subtle ways. So for example, I'm a massive gamer. Well, I used to be a massive gamer. And whenever I play like role-playing games, because I love role-playing games, like The Witcher 3 always gives you these really moral choices. And I had to like Google the consequences of each one before I did it, just to make sure I didn't do the right one and I picked that. What age do you think you were when you first realized that these feelings you were having weren't physical? And they were actually in your mind, do you think? Growing up, uh, I would have always had a pretty rich interior life, uh, an inner monologue, perhaps because my brothers were a little bit older than me and I spent a good bit of time on my own entertaining myself. The way I see it is that you're in your head 24-7 and you should treat your inner monologue with kindness as much as you can control. And I know that's harder for some people than others. It's a strange thing that solitary confinement can be considered both torture and bliss, depending on the mind. So as much as you can control, try and speak to yourself in your head with a bit more kindness. When you had that first conversation about your mental health with someone, how did you react to it? And and did you feel like almost like a part of you had changed or you had entered a new chapter in your life? Or did it seem fairly insignificant at the time? How did you look back on it? I think... Something that stands out to me is I remember being particularly haunted when my mother, when I was about 10, explained what Alzheimer's was, how Alzheimer's affects the mind. I remember thinking how horrifying it was to imagine losing grip of that interior life and the stuff that makes you, you, your connection to the past, who you were then, your memories would all just disintegrate. That was particularly horrifying for me. I think it then started to cause me to analyze how other people's interior lives seemed and how they were different to mine. And you can almost recognize in someone's face when they're in pain inside. Obviously, sometimes it's not clear at all what toil is going on behind someone's eyes. But I began to kind of treasure how nice it feels in my own head, but recognize how fragile this is and how many variables there are that within our control or outside of our control can kind of impact on how your mind feels. And what triggers do you have in life that might affect your mental health? Obviously, you talked about overthinking, but have you found any triggers that you focused on and try and avoid or have you not figured all of them out yet? Definitely still learning, always learning, but I don't want to seem cliched here, but I think the body, fitness, diet and particularly posture is a big one. Uh, I think like sitting is the new smoking. So people in desk jobs really need to find some outlet to fix their posture. Finding people who see the world in a similar way to you is important. And I'm different in this regard that I actually find Twitter to be a huge force for good on this front because it's broadened my social circles. I mean, it's how we found each other, right? I would feel very alienated politically if it wasn't for Twitter. If I thought I I stood alone in the way I saw the world. And so, yeah, unusually, Twitter has been been a good for mental health. (laughs) You won't hear that from many people. It's been great for me as well in finding mental health advocates and other people who share similar experiences. I agree with you. You know, Twitter is a tool and it can be used for horrific negativity. And, you know, you only have to look at football Twitter for an example of that. 
But for me, like you said, it's been great in finding people who they might tweet something and you think I was the only person who thought that. So it's definitely been great for me. And it's the reason why we're speaking today. So it's, it's all good stuff. What tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health, Will? You've spoken about a slightly controversial book by Johan Hari, which helped you understand the day-to-day methods which can help our mental health and connect our body and mind. So tell me how that's helped you. I didn't really know that Johan Harry's book, Lost Connections, I didn't really know it was controversial until I spoke to yourself. What I found useful about Harry's book was that it opened my eyes to some of the inefficacy of mental health medication for many and that the over-medication of young people, particularly in America, the problems that can cause. It also opened my eyes to the effectiveness of some what we describe as natural antidepressants, such as nature, open air, exercise, posture, meaning. Incidentally, a lot of these things would mirror the lifestyle that we would have lived throughout our evolved history, and that can have a huge effect. So, for example, in a zoo, we tend to try and mimic an animal's natural habitat as much as possible. But with human beings, we put ourselves hunched over laptops in stale, aired office buildings with artificial light and artificial foods. So, you know, there's a mismatch there in terms of environment. And if you can control your environment and make it what we're meant to exist in as much as possible. We've come to the toxic masculinity part, which we'll kind of break down a little bit because we've already discussed it in earlier parts of the pod. So for me, it means men shaming others because they don't fit a defined expectation of what a man should be to that person. So it could be punishing vulnerability. It could be punishing expressing emotion outside of traditional male archetypes or even, you know, probable homophobia. So, for example, calling another person gay because they wear a pink shirt or they express emotion, or they don't like football, or something like that. What is your take on it? We talked about toxic masculinity a bit, but success looks different to everyone, and I think the same goes, to some extent, for masculinity. It's ever-evolving, it's always in flux. You know, even on the homophobia, you know, Spartan warriors back in the day would have brought a boy with them to war as sexual relief and I don't know if people are aware of that but like it just shows nobody would question their masculinity right my issue with toxic masculinity is this idea that men suffer from their own nature by virtue of being a man that's a toxic idea in my mind and the homophobia thing I do see it I I get where you're coming from certainly in school I think it's more a tribal and a fear of the unknown thing for example I didn't realize that gay men could be anything other than camp until I moved to the UK and was exposed to that because I just hadn't ever seen it. I hadn't seen it on media. I hadn't seen it in my real life. Uh, so that was a blew me away. There's a lot of big men in the gyms, mate. Right. Yeah. Some of the most manly men I know now are kind of gay men. So I think as well in ecosystems like schools, students will kind of pick out on anything to otherize a person. So sexuality is probably an easy identifying marker, like perhaps my height was or another person's weight might be. It's an area... I'd like to see some improvement on is team sports. I think a positive Premier League role model who come out of the closet would go a long way. I think that's surely only around the corner. And I think as a society, we'd be a pretty well placed to positively receive that now. I think we've made massive strides over the last 30 years in terms of homophobia and gay rights. And I don't see why that shouldn't continue. As the politicians in Ireland say, a lot done, a lot more to do. But, you know, even Ireland as an example, people would kind of somewhat dismiss us as oh, old-fashioned Catholic religious backwater, whereas we're the only country to vote for same-sex marriage by way of public opinion. That was a huge source of pride for me. 
and indicative that our populace is very young and progressive. So that's a, a really good indicator of the direction of travel in terms of homophobia. Like I even had my own father, I was really proud of him, arguing with people over whether gay people should be allowed to get married or not. And he just took such a strong stance that they should, you know, it was so refreshing to see. What you just said there is a great example of positive masculinity, Will. I hope one day it should just be described as masculinity altogether. How would you define positive masculinity and what qualities should a man exude to be positively masculine? So some guests have said self-confidence, some guests have said emotional intelligence and what you described as self-awareness I think is a really big thing because if a man's not self-aware, a lot of the time he will say a lot of stupid things and if someone points it out to him, he'll feel attacked or he'll feel like I'm not actually saying anything wrong. And a self-awareness as well. If you're not self-aware, you'll start working towards a vision of masculinity or a vision of success that isn't really in fitting with you and that'll jar with yourself. In terms of positive masculinity, there is a concept called heroic individualism that I think appeals to men generally. And it's like an archetype that you should be the hero in your own story. I think men generally like projects and taking action. So men like to know that they can affect change and do something that will help. We're problem solvers. Whenever you have an argument with my girlfriend, we always end up, she says to me, I don't want you to help. I don't want you to fix the problem. I just want you to listen. <laughs> Whereas when I tell her a problem, I'm like, I very much want you to help here. I don't want you to just listen to this. Just so that we're kind of a, a little bit different in that regard. So my advice would be to men to treat yourself like the most important project in your world and make today better than yesterday in any small way that you can and kind of treat yourself like you would a best friend. Positive masculinity and positive masculine traits are traditionally stoicism, rationality, protective, courage, independent, ambitious. There's loads, but not every man needs to be endowed with everything. So I would say self-awareness is most important because then you have knowledge of what you need to work on, what you can emphasize and how to design a life around yourself that will fit. So for example, with incels, I would advise doubling down on what's good already and focusing on that. For example, like there's no point in me trying to make it as a cutthroat CEO of a business. It's just not me. I'd be, I'd be very unhappy chasing that version of masculinity. So, you know, knowing yourself is really important. And just finally, Will, this has been an absolutely amazing pod. What more do you think we have to do to try and help men, if it is useful to them, open up and talk about their mental health issues or their mental health whenever they can. Thanks again for having me on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. It's great what you're doing. In terms of encouraging men to open up and normalizing the conversation, I think coming to terms with yourself and your experiences inwardly is more important even than opening up. So I can't believe I'm going to quote a Bible verse here, but uh, it's all this question. I'm not a religious man at all, but this one really stands out to me. And I think there are Perhaps as Jordan Peterson says, there's meta-truths and archetypes that ring down through the ages in religion. So I'm trying to gleam a bit of value from it wherever I can. It's from the Gospel of Thomas, and it's saying 70. And it says, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. And that, to me, it could be translated as you need to open up and talk about everything. But for me, it's more that knowing yourself, and that doesn't necessarily mean you having to talk, 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 but it does mean you need to confront your own self within.
Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In Pod. I want to say a massive thank you to Will for being my special guest. I hope you found it engaging, insightful, and a bit of a different Just Checking In this time. I'll put some links to where you can follow Will on social media, watch the debate we referenced, and read more of his articles in the description of the pod. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. If you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or give us a review or rating on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Thank you.